in the early days of software, an app might have been a single executable built in C with a makefile and transferred to an FTP server. Only a few steps to run, so no harm typing them all out. Later, you needed to create an installer and verify a suite of different tests all passed and ship the software from multiple locations and app stores. Mostly though, all that testing and delivery was done by people who weren't engineers. We didn't really ask what they were up to, but we knew it involved lots of clicking and typing. Best leave them to it. That was the early days of software though. You're not still doing that, are you? Welcome to the Engineering Culture Podcast, where this week we're asking, are you delivering? When one of your favorite apps recommends something to you, whether a book, a song, or a person, if it becomes your favorite book, song, or person in the whole world, it can feel like magic. The way the pixels were arranged on that day, the way the app just knew what you wanted. Are we sure this is science and not something more to do with fate? Well, we are sure. Maybe no single person has all the tiny steps required fully understood in their head, but it's all pulses of ones and zeros all instructions based on logic and abstraction that were typed in by a human, one keystroke at a time. Even if it contained code copied from Stack Overflow or generated by AI, those tools were seeded by someone else's typing or text. If we go back far enough, someone did indeed have to write the atomic layer of computer science code somewhere. The more you think of your apps as magic rather than what they are, boring oscillations of voltage through semiconductors, the more likely you are to forget what a computer program is. It's automation. That's all it is, nothing more, nothing less. Code is automation, and automation is code. We develop an app with life-changing capabilities that customers will step over their ancestors to acquire. That's some code. We create all kinds of metadata to ensure that while our app is running, we know it's doing so correctly and that people can use it as expected. More code. We write a bunch of scripts and litter them across cloud and continuous integration tools so that any updates to our app get pushed to our customers ASAP. More code. Doesn't matter what type of code has been written, it's all blocks of instructions to a non-sentient piece of plastic and metal that is really good at quickly executing them without making a mistake. In short, it's all automation. So if during any part of the process, you find yourself waiting on a human to do something or agree something, if you find that one human is looking at blinking lights and clicking button after button before moving on to the next step in the chain, you could well have an automation gap. The smartest people on the planet can be blind to gaps in automation and can be duped like any other lab rat becoming just another button tapper for a pellet searching for that next hit of dopamine. As we continue going through today's episode, you will notice that we're proposing spending a lot of time, money, and energy on achieving automation. Time, money, and energy, which isn't being spent on making product features for paying customers. Surely this is engineers rabbit holing on busy work, which provides no value. This is the corporate version of the marshmallow test which is a game you can play with a five-year-old to gauge their relationship with delayed gratification. Give them one marshmallow and tell them that they are free to eat it now, or if they resist all temptation for 15 minutes, they will be given an additional marshmallow. 
one now or two in 15 minutes. Companies and infants can be similar in how they mesh together all the competing inputs and considerations before deciding what to do. How any one individual decision is taken is not as interesting as the outcomes that arise in the long term. A company that always goes for the quick win can never consider long-term strategy, never has the capacity to invest in improving engineering fundamentals, is a company that will eventually become a horrendous place to work at for software engineers. Regular outages, noisy alerts, flaky tests, brittle systems, knowledge silos everywhere, little to no delivery. We introduced the idea of imaginary problems in episode 4. This was a bitter pill for some engineers to swallow, that their concerns about future problems are imaginary and it's better to deliver some value today and deal with the inevitable issue only when it becomes pressing. Focus on automation is the bitter pill for company management. You need to go slow to go fast. Companies that never prioritize pace of delivery, that never acknowledge the manual nature of their delivery, will be usurped. They're trying to run a marathon in heavy boots while still carrying their shopping from the day before because they didn't prioritize putting it away or changing into running shoes. And now it's a burden they carry around with them wherever they go. Focus on automation is just one example of the concept of flywheel efficiency. David Brailsford came to the British Olympic cycling team with a foundational idea of finding small improvements, even just 1% improvements, but lots of them. If you understand compound interest, you already understand all the mathematics needed to explain why this is a great strategy. Teams that work on delivering fast are set up to produce more value in the long run. Marginal gains led British cycling to eight gold medals at both 2008 and 2012 Olympics. What could it do at your company? Tech companies create new releases of their apps. They will perform what's called a code deployment to share their updated software version with their users. For mobile apps, this publishes an update in an app store. For web apps, this updates the HTML, CSS and JavaScript assets and web servers and content distribution networks, as well as updating the code running on web servers. There are equivalent processes for desktop software and software libraries. If you celebrate performing a code deployment, you're doing it wrong. One of my previous companies had a release schedule of once every six weeks, and they did used to celebrate software updates, sometimes with a bottle of fizz. In this company, there were multiple tiered steps of development, testing, and QA before final acceptance. Because each of these demanded a large amount of time, the cycles between them were all long. Teams were given a period of roughly a month from beginning features to completion before code freezes were instigated. This is where development of new features is banned because it risks breaking existing functionality. Developers work on new features, but they keep them to the side until the current crop of changes are cleared for release and the code deployment takes place. Experienced engineers may understand that this is a necessary penalty for coordinating several features concurrently into a single code base. Given, say, 50 engineers who all want to develop code against the same service, a lot of time is needed to deal with the unintended consequences each engineer's code has on the others. That company eventually got to the correct relationship with code deployments. An engineer could start work on a small feature at the beginning of the day, 
complete the development and testing cycles, have a peer review of their code, and start the deployment process as they left the building in the same day without stopping to check if everything would be successful or not. This is what peak performance looks like. When I joined my next company, I found that they were naming releases. They had internal competitions to come up with designs for each release that got made into stickers. This is what a 20th century tech company looks like. In many ways, it made me feel like I made a good choice for joining from a career perspective. I was an engineering leader and I could see that they had inefficiencies, obvious problems to fix. I was going to be part of improving the engineering culture. This is one of the foundational reasons to understand the best ways of working from an engineering culture perspective. If you become a better coder, you can make a better program. If you spread better engineering culture, you can work at an improved company. What do long release cycles have to do with automation though? Think about how difficult it is to pass a large metal tray from one person to the next with 12 mugs of tea of different sizes, some half empty, some full to the brim. The possibility for spillage is great. The handover is done slowly and carefully. The bigger the tray and the more mugs, the more you have to worry about. If there's a mistake, let's say you want to do a retrospective to understand what mistakes you made and how might you avoid similar ones in the future. Ah, that little red mug was full to the brim and it was placed near the outside of the tray, so it was disproportionately unstable. Let's make sure it's near the centre of the tray next time. Well, how about this? Let's just pass one mug at a time. No tray is required. Focus is purely on one single mug. It will be intuitively more apparent what a safe speed is for the single mug. The passing will be practised more frequently, mistakes happening less. This only makes sense, though, if you're transporting the mugs over a small distance. If the journey between destinations is significant, more throughput is achieved with carrying more at a time, not less. Leaving the analogy and returning to the world of software engineering, passing one mug of tea at a time is deploying once per unit, for whatever unit you're using. Maybe that's an epic, a standalone feature or bug fix, or even a single git commit. Many engineers will feel uncomfortable at the idea of this because their journey between the destinations, that is, the cost of deployment, is too great. This is because without conscious thought and discipline, deployments can become bad experiences for the engineers that are responsible for executing them. They take time, mental energy and incur risk. It's impractical to make a deployment after every change unless they are fast, simple and safe. And how do we achieve that? With automation. Building on the lessons of episode two of the Engineering Culture podcast to organize teams so that they're accountable for outcomes, the team developing the software that's deployed is the same team that's doing the deployment. T-shaped engineers can work closely together so that they can overcome any challenges producing the necessary degree of automation. In the mid-2000s, I was working on a million plus lines of code application for Windows desktop and servers. As well as software installation, it required an enterprise database. One set of developers was responsible for writing the code, while another was responsible for building it, packaging it up and installing it onto customer machines. It was already five years after the initial release of something called cruise control 
that a colleague of mine started thinking about automating not just the code used by our customers for their financial risk use cases. What if we could use cruise control to continuously build the application to see if everything worked exactly as expected all the time? I didn't understand why anyone would want to do this. This is because, in my head, I still thought all of those manual steps of testing, building installers, publishing to where they could be installed were all still unquestionably necessary. One of my favorite interview questions is to ask candidates to describe how the code for the feature that they've just finished developing on their company laptop gets to end users. I ask this because I'm looking to gauge their understanding of the end-to-end process of getting code safely to the user because it should be as automated as possible. Almost all software companies today use continuous integration systems, more simply CI, like the aforementioned cruise control, and others like Jenkins, Team City, and Travis, which have been around for decades. Only the best teams, however, actively minimize the gap between continuous integration and continuous deployment, and strive to achieve the latter. Companies that use CI only to provide feedback before deployment are simply putting more and more mugs on the tray. Companies that use CI to perform continuous deployment can ship a new change whenever it's ready. If a new feature introduces a significant bug or fatal logic error, the problem could be with any one of the many changes that were released. By concentrating on small independent deployments, problems are spotted and fixed much sooner with less impact to users. CI systems have spread massively over the last 10 years, with many companies adding deployment automation as a plus one to their existing features. Version control systems like GitHub and GitLab now have GitHub Actions and GitLab CI. Cloud computing providers have their own solutions like AWS's Code Pipeline. And the space is still open to new innovation with startups like Buddy, Harness and Semaphore, as well as countless others. Here goes then. Here is a breakdown of many of the steps that an internet-based service or app might have in a continuous integration pipeline. A CI pipeline is constructed like a factory conveyor belt. Steps are completed strictly in sequence. Each step must complete successfully to proceed to the next one. Companies not complying with this core value, who progress forward releases with failed steps in the pipeline, have poor engineering culture. At the very least, they are trying to justify bad practices. We'll begin by breaking it down into three high-level phases, build, test, and deploy. Number one, build. The build, test, deploy steps are usually sequential, but there are overlaps. Linting is a simple form of static analysis which forbids inconsistent code styling, which is technically a test. But this can be done prior to building within the pipeline or even before merging using git pre-commit hooks. Unit tests are, as the name suggests, tests, but are so simple and fast to execute that they are usually run prior to building a deployable artifact. More advanced static analysis can also be performed using tools like SonarCube or Sneak to estimate code complexity or identify security issues. Whatever the team wants, they can put in place barriers that block progression if the source code is not at the desired standard. For example, unit test coverage is only at 50%. What the build artifact is, which will be tested more thoroughly later before being deployed, depends largely on the tech required. The most fashionable build artifact choice today for internet-based services is a Docker image, but it could be any OCI image, that's Open Container Initiative. Creating container images from, say, a Docker file decouples the package software from the platform that runs it, 
The build artifact could be anything though, a jar file for a Java web app, a DLL or an installer for a Windows desktop, or a minified JavaScript bundle. Whatever it is, once the artifact is complete, it is uploaded to a central repository like Docker Hub, Artifactory, Amazon's ECR, Google's GCR, a cloud distribution network or CDN, or a package repository like NPM. Regardless of where it could be stored, the build artifact is made available to the subsequent steps in the CI pipeline. Number two, test. Each stage triggers the next. If we got as far as building a viable software artifact, we're on to looking at automated tests to give confidence that the most important functionality is working exactly as expected. We've already covered the simplest layer of automated testing, that of unit tests. There are many schools of thought about testing strategies within a CI pipeline, but a few key principles help keep steps in this layer maintainable. Unit tests are cheap to write, cheap to maintain, and fast to execute. So these are where the most tests should be. Integration tests and contract tests take a little more thought to implement and cost more in maintenance, so there should be fewer of them. End-to-end -end or acceptance tests are the most complex and longest running of all, so there should be fewer still, only a small number of them. There are new tools that can help with the complexity of testing within CI pipelines, like PackedIO. In addition to testing APIs, web and mobile apps can render components which output image files such as PNGs, which can be used with visual regression tests. There are also headless browsers which help with programmatically verifying the state of the DOM tree created by web apps. Thus, even UI changes can be tested in an automated way without human intervention. There are many techniques and strategies to consider when automating test plans in a CI pipeline that it's foolish to consider going too deep on the topic here. The old adage applies regardless of how the testing is done. Testing can detect the presence of error, but it cannot prove its absence. There's only so far you'll get with automated testing, so the trade-off needs to consider how many bugs are let through over time during deployments versus how expensive the tests are to maintain versus how long the tests take to run. Number three, deployment. In the final phase of the CI pipeline, we let our real-life users try out our features in production. In the simplest form, this is overwriting the current software application or assets with the new version from the build stage we've just created. For some types of release, there can be only one, and we have to create a single new latest software instance, like a new version in an app store or package manager. Using the internet, though, we are provided many mechanisms for partitioning user traffic and allowing new features to be released in a phased manner. Session tokens, stored via HTTP headers, can segment user traffic and create canary releases or multiple rounds of phased blue-green deployments. In these cases, small percentages of customers are shown new versions of software and metrics are closely measured for the new version as well as the previous. Product and engineering success metrics, such as HTTP response codes, latencies, and goal activation, for example, a user clicking on a book button, are all compared. If the statistical deviation between the two versions is similar, the phased rollout can continue to a larger cohort. If the metrics are wildly different, the CI pipeline can roll back the change and alert the issue to the engineers. Marking a good release as a bad one can be annoying to the team and cause a bit of delay but iterative improvements to the metrics mean that this becomes less and less likely over time. The consequence of marking a bad release as bad is that users are protected 
and the error is spotted at speed of automation, not humans. Hand in hand with CD, or continuous deployment, goes tracking the percentage of successful deployments. This can be measured as part of what are known as DORA metrics, short for DevOps Research and Assessment. This increased automation is married to increased measurement so that teams can make data-led decisions about how well the process is going. For those engineers who are used to more manual workflows that allow humans to check in with their gut, this can feel like a loss of control. I've given a talk a few times about deployment processes from end to end, where I talk through all of the above, build, test, and deploy phases, and note that only two of them need to be manual. Developing the code and reviewing the code. That's it. Just those two parts need to be manual. In many real-world applications, a correctly designed CI pipeline can become a fully CD one. Merging a pull request starts a trigger that goes 100% to production to be deployed to all users with no intervention from a human. It is a beautiful sight to see an engineer merge code to the mainline branch at the end of their working day, knowing it will execute a deployment and they leave without seeing its result. The outcome, whether successful or not, that's an issue for tomorrow. Let's talk about the gap between theory and practice for a few minutes. What I just described about an engineer starting an automated deployment to a production system used by millions of people for a billion dollar company, that is real. I was the technical manager of a team where that happened regularly. The aim of the Engineering Culture podcast is to inspire and share the art of what's possible in the world of leading tech companies, and that that knowledge isn't secret. You can use it in your company too. What's hard to convey in a 30-minute format is all the context needed to avoid badly cargo culting a specific technique. This is in part why each episode has so many links in the show notes, so that you, the listener, are directed to find out more on your own. Continuous deployment is pushed here as the goal to aim for because most of the wasted time and mistakes when deploying will come from manual processes. But if your current manual process is an over-engineered mess, attempting to automate it exactly as is will continue setting yourself up for failure. Already there have been hints at a couple of the key mistakes that could be made, but allow me to make them more explicit. The first issue to solve before considering continuous deployment is ensuring your automated testing strategy is as efficient as possible. Most testing strategies talk about a test pyramid. This is where unit tests are at the bottom layer of the pyramid and where the largest number of tests exist. Each layer of tests going up sees fewer and fewer tests. Software systems which have evolved without conscious thought towards an automated testing strategy can produce an inverted pyramid with little to no unit testing balanced out by a large number of unmaintainable and slow end-to-end -end tests. Correcting the testing strategy is a prerequisite to reaching continuous deployments. The degree to which your application requires back-end state, for example, one or more databases or third-party APIs, determines a lot of the constraints on how all these test phases are implemented. If you're deploying a microservice, it's an untenable path to attempt to run all its dependencies and data stores as containers in the pipeline. Better to have some balance of mocked data structures, defined contracts, or even limited testing against production. There are different problems if you have more of a monolith architecture. 
It may be that you simply cannot automate all the many checks that are needed so that the automation runs quickly enough to make true continuous deployment achievable in practice. Something that was shared way back in episode one is that everything is a trade-off. I've seen companies go in cycles over several years where they realized they were too centralized so they needed to decentralize. Part of this means deploying independently and reducing the friction from interacting with engineering platform teams. Bumping into a former colleague years after leaving a company, I was informed that they had chosen another front-end web and mobile rendering platform to re-centralize key functionality. Everything is a trade-off. When things go too far in a direction, some people want to bring it back. So it is that some are proponents of release trains, regular deployments completed at fixed schedule. Teams that want to be part of a release must have their changes merged into a specific branch and comply with specific processes to see their changes deployed. For companies that cannot decentralize to the degree needed to deploy safely and independently in, say, 10 minutes, release trains are an appealing compromise which decouples responsibility for releasing from delivering new features. Real continuous deployment is not a dream but it can take a lot of work to achieve depending on the state of the current deployment process and the app itself. We hope we've left you inspired with the art of what's possible and some next steps to look into. Thanks for joining us for another session to consider engineering culture and subtle ways pure technical matters reach out far across the business as a whole. Solving customer problems and delivering value to users is one of the hardest things to do, regardless of the technologies you use or the industry you're in. The more time engineers, product managers and designers spend on that, the more likely you are to succeed as a business. Failing fast, that is, finding problems early, shipping fast and reliably, these are the habits that will make your creators focus their efforts on the right people, your users. When days are wasted finding which feature resulted in a bug getting to production, when weeks are wasted on code freezes because you cannot reliably ship, you will move at a pace well below what's achievable. But worse than that, you create an environment which saps the joy out of your engineers. The creative spark and drive to make things better will be dimmed from your most enthusiastic and entrepreneurial engineers if you leave them constantly battling against costly and cumbersome release processes. This is such a big and important subject that it's unlikely it will be the final time we discuss all the topics raised in today's episode. As we briefly touched on earlier, there are huge considerations wrapped in the idea of continuous delivery from testing strategies, deployment strategies, as well as the age-old flame war of monoliths versus microservices. That's for another time though. If you've been with us for the first six episodes, I am truly grateful. We're halfway through series one and still have a lot of great insight to share on topics like the software development lifecycle, stopping outages, how best to design software systems, rethinking technical debt, progressing in your career, and how to hire the best people for your company. This podcast is a side project to the day job. So we thank you in advance for your patience in waiting for episodes 7 to 12. As mentioned in the series trailer, we want to make some podcast episodes which cover the topics we've discussed in practice, as well as just how things work in theory. We'd love to get your thoughts on the series so far. Please check the show notes for how to do that, as well as for references for further exploration. Until we meet again for the second half, keep on being accountable, up 
available, useful, and keep on delivering and improving. Thank you again and goodbye for now.